Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. If you're here and you really desire to be here and you want to be here and you came here for church and to hear the things of God and to put yourself to, to the side and put God and glorify God and exalt God, then that makes God happy. That makes God pleased. That puts a smile on God's face. And I hope you didn't come here today to be entertained. As I sadly, 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 I wish I wouldn't have, but watched uh, one of the services of a mega church pastor who he used that word and that phrase in a sermon that I watched a little bit of the other day. He said, all right, let's get, in, let's get entertained. But the Bible says that we're not supposed to come to church to be entertained. We're not supposed to come here just to hear about our marriages or to hear about the, this or that or whatever. We're supposed to be here to seek God and to know more about the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, the Savior of all mankind, and how He said to live, and how He lived, and the good things that He talked about. We're not supposed to be here for ourselves, or for our own social position, or to find a wife, or, or to play sports. Or We're here to know the Lord more. That's why church is there. That's what God designed church for, the fellowship of the brethren, and the learning about God, and seeking God, and knowing God more, knowing His ways more. So I hope that's why you came to Gospel Saving Church. If this is your first time here, hello, I'm Pastor Ed. I come to you from McKinney, Texas, and this is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last times, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word. God's Word, not my opinion, God's Word. Not the world's wants and desires, God's Word. We always start with a word of prayer. I pray, hope you would honor me and joining me with this word of prayer and asking Lord, the Lord God to help us understand because we know His word says that without the Holy Spirit, without Him teaching us, we can't understand anything because we're so human. So, Lord, we thank you for bringing us here, Lord. We thank you, Lord God. We, we know, Lord God, that, Lord, you are with us, Lord God. We know for your two children all over the world, Lord God, as long as we abide in you, you will abide in us, Lord God. We know Lord God, as long as we stay the course, Lord God, you will be our God and that you will lead us and guide us and show us the way and light our paths, Lord. And as we seek you in your word and as we seek you through prayer and, and fasting and, and whatever other ways, Lord God, that you want us to seek you, Lord God, I, I just pray that we would. God, I pray that we would. Lord, that we would be the generation or part of the generation, Lord God, that seeks you. Lord God, those who... Don't fall away, Lord God, those who endure to the end, Lord God, those who love you for who you are and obey the things that you tell us to do because we love you, Lord God, not so that we can be loved by you as the religious way is today. Help us to understand your word, Heavenly Father. We know that only by your Holy Spirit can we understand your word and only if you teach us, Lord God. So I pray, God, please teach us. Please, God. Teach us, show us by your Holy Spirit the things that you want us to learn. And then, Lord God, may we not just be uh, listeners of the Word, Lord, but may we hear the Word and may we do the things which you tell us to do, Lord God. We thank you and we love you and we praise you. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So you can turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, for that's where we're going to be today. But I'm not going to read them or teach them until I give my overview, you should say, of last week's message, The Great Seeker, with Great Seeker being all in cast. Last week we talked about The Great Seeker, right? The Ethiopian man, Jewish, I believe, whom traveled all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship Jehovah, right? And we learned about some other things that happened to him on his return. And we talked about why he was a great seeker. Remember, Jerusalem or Ethiopia from Jerusalem was 3, 000, about 3,000 miles. And then the return trip would be about 3,000 miles as well, too. Which when we broke it all down and we dug deep and everything, we found that that was about a six-month journey. Overall, that's not, even, that's not even counting the time that he was actually in Jerusalem seeking God while he was there. Because it says that he came there to worship Jehovah. So it, this could have been maybe like a six and a half month or a seven month journey total, which meant that he would have been away from Jerusalem for that, or from Ethiopia for that long. And he was kind of, he was a servant of the queen of Ethiopia, which meant that she actually then saw his earnestness for God and then gave him that much time to get away. I mean, that's, that's even a miracle from God right then and there. 
right? Uh, and, and why was he doing this? Well, because God and Jesus Christ were drawing him and he was responding to their draw. Because it is God that draws and Christ that draws. It's not, we don't approach on our own. We, we in and of ourselves are, uh, we, have, we have nothing. We're, we're just human. But God and Christ are the one that draws. But our responsibility is, is that we have to respond. We have to cho- either choose to respond or we have to reject that responding. And so he chose to respond. And because he did, God can't deny himself. And he saw this Ethiopian great seeker man respond to his call and he ran to him. Think of it. Ran to him with his disciple Philip to help him come to repentance to life. Pretty powerful story. The Ethiopian man set his heart to seek God diligently and because of it, God pulled Philip away from the work he was doing in Samaritan village where, where there were probably some maybe hundreds of thirsty seekers there, thirsty new disciples that needed discipleship and needed mentoring. And God is the same today. We also talked about that also. Just think of it. The God of all heaven and earth recognizes it when a person responds to his drawing. He recognizes it. And he makes provision and runs to meet that person right where they are. Even as we learned in the Ethiopian's case, in the middle of the desert road. A desert road in which we found last week there was not one city from Jerusalem to Gaza. There wasn't one city. This was a true desert road. Remember Jesus, Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask, seek, and knock. It's principles that he laid down. Not us. He laid down those principles. And if I or you or anyone follows his desire to do those things, because those things are his desire, right? Then God Almighty in 2 Chronicles 9, 16, God's eyes are looking for anyone who hears. If they're strong toward him, if they respond, if they, if they start to seek the Lord of glory, and he will respond to your seeking him and will meet you right where you are, even today. Wow, even today. I just find it fascinating that God has this kind of character. Just think, he has all creation, invisible and visible, all space, all time, all earth, all sea creatures, everything to run. Everything to keep in a perfect, perfect balance. Just think. Yet he still has time to run to pitiful, worthless, and wretched, sinful mankind if we'll just respond to his drawing to seek Christ and seek him diligently. God is truly love, isn't he? He's the end of all love. If you want to know how to truly love, just follow God's pattern found in His Word. He loves with an action love, a rubber to the road love. And if you want to experience His love, the great and wonderful love that He has to offer you, show Him He's important to you. Show Him He's important to you. Show Him He's important to you by getting in His Word, seeking Him in His Word, seeking Him in prayer, seeking Him through church. Seeking him through worship. I got up just this morning and felt it on my heart. God just said, worship me. And so I came out and I just spent most of my time with the Lord this morning just worshiping him. Seek him in worship. Show him he's important to you. Same as the Ethiopian man, right? And seek Jesus Christ and he'll reveal himself to you in a supernatural, amazing way. (laughs) Wow. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. All right, well, let's get on to our new sermon for today, shall we? Message title. I love it. It comes right from Scripture, right? Actually, it's a part of a verse that we're going to study today. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So let's read Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, shall we? See what God has to say to us today, and then I'll teach on it. Acts chapter 9, you should already be there. Verses 1 through 9. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. 
Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? If, if only everybody. Lord, what do you want me to do? Then, then the Lord said to him, Arise, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. So, I mean, he was blind. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Wow. That's uh, what a story, right? What an, what an account, right? Big change in characters today, right? Big change in characters today. No more Philip. No more Apostles James, no more John, no more Judas, no more Peter, no more Andrew, no, not even one. We're not going to hear about one of these awesome Apostles or men of God today. Today we get the privilege of hearing all about how Christ moves powerfully in the life of one of the most unlikely people's lives. One of the most unlikely people in all the world, I would have to say, (laughs) to seriously get his attention, right? The surprising candidate is no other than the very angry, the very evil, murderous, I'll even add after that first verse of our scripture today, and hateful Christian hunter and slayer, Saul, the Jewish Pharisee, right? Remember way back in chapter 7 of Acts, the table-waiting disciple Stephen gets railroaded by some evil and deplorable Jewish men who think they are godly, and they falsely accuse Stephen of speaking evil against Moses and God, even though he didn't. But because the religious leaders were really wanting to stomp out Christianity and its followers, they arrest him, they put him on trial, and they unjustly convict him and then murder him after he gives them the hard pill of truth to swallow, remember? They stone him to death, and the murder is led by one young, very evil religious man, the same Saul we read about today, as he aided those stoning Stephen by holding their coats And so what? Approving of their actions, making him really an accomplice to Stephen's murder. For if you you help somebody murder somebody, and they say, hey, I'm going to go over here, hey, watch my stuff so I can go murder this guy, and you stand there, you're just as guilty of murder as the actual people that pulled the trigger or the actual person that strangled the person, whatever. Uh, Then in Acts A, remember, this same Saul goes on a rampage of enormous proportions as he Chapter 8 makes havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. This would have been in Jerusalem. He was a bad dude. He was a real bad dude. That's for sure. Uh, We open up today reading of Saul and yet another level of his evil against God's spiritual kids. Verses 1 and 2 again. Then Saul still, see, he never stopped. He just kept going. Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Notice notice he wasn't just threatening or he wasn't just arresting. God showed me this is after the fact. After actually my sermon was pretty much almost done. But he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He went to the high priest uh, to ask for letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way... That's what they call Christianity at the time, the way, whether men or women, and he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Again, he was a really evil dude. Notice he did these things of his own accord. Nobody led him to do those things. Nobody prodded him. Saul, yes, are you going to lead the charge still against Christian? No, no. He, He didn't need anybody's leading or prompting. He did these things of his own accord. He goes to the head religious leader of the religion of Judaism, which I'm sure he knew, but I'm, I'm sure this maybe this guy, he maybe might have been hard to get an audience with. I mean, right, he was the high priest, right? Yet Saul, just a normal Pharisee, he takes it upon himself to go right up to the, you know, the religious leader, the high priest, and purposely asks him for letters of authority to go after Christians in other cities to arrest them for the crime of loving and following Jesus the Christ. Wow, what a crime, right? Those heinous people, those, those deplorable followers of Jesus Christ. I can't believe how bad they were. Uh, I, I joke. Any, anyway, he, he goes and gets these letters so that he can have Christ's followers arrested and brought to Jerusalem so that they could, could be punished, right? 
and imprisoned and even murder as he was breathing threats and murder against God's children. And just think, he did all this evil in the name of God. He did all this evil under the banner of who he thought Jehovah was. And just think, he thought he was in God's will and doing what God wanted him to do while he was doing it all, while he was arresting and murdering Christians. Now, I could understand, and this is a little aside here, I could understand if Saul had lived six to seven hundred years before this time, right? When if any of the children of Israel went after strange gods, God would allow and encourage their execution because these practices of the false gods that they were practicing, right, like passing their children through the fire of all these, and all these evil things and worship, worshiping by sex rituals, all these other false gods. I can understand if this is what the disciples of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ were doing, and that's why Saul was really leading the charge because, you know, after all, that's not how we worship Jehovah, right? But this is not six to seven hundred years earlier, and it was roughly 40 to 45 A.D. here, uh, but even if it were, which it wasn't, neither Christ nor any of his followers of this time that Saul was persecuting, they ever taught or, any pract- or ever practiced any contrary ideas or practices against Jehovah or his ways or his laws, and they never worshiped false gods. In fact, Jesus, he even followed the laws of God. He followed the worship of God. He did the things that he was supposed to do. He followed the Sabbath. He did some healings, which they thought was against man, well, which were against man's traditions, not against God's traditions. And he did, he followed Jesus Christ. He followed God Almighty. So Saul, by by persecuting them, wasn't like he was justified in all. In, In reality, Saul was just an evil religious man that had his heart set on the destruction of the followers of Christ and the way as I said again, as it's called here, as Christianity was called in Saul's time. So Saul is on on an unholy and unwarranted, even in God's eyes, rampage against the followers of Christ. And look at the words, the very first words of verse 3 here. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. This tells us a lot. This doesn't just tell us, well, you could just glaze this over and think, oh yeah, but what it means is, is that he was asking for letters, remember, from the high priest to go. To Damascus, and then the very next verse we read that he's going. And what does that tell you? Is that the high priest approved of what he was doing? The high priest, oh yeah, all right, hey, hey, if you're gonna go, I'll go. And then we even read it down a little bit further that he even got some travel companions. So the high priest probably appointed some travel companions to go along and help him so he could get those really naughty Christians for following, you know, God and the way he was. Right? But this was no ordinary trip. For this evil religious zealot, was it, as we just read over, as the rest of verse 3 tells us. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. So just outside of Damascus, actually what that verse just said, he and some other travelers that went with him were almost there. Verse 7 tells us that were other travelers. They were almost there. And all of a sudden, this light shines all around him. So bright is this light to him to Saul, that he, look at the first six words of verse 4, then he fell to the ground. This was a bright light. This wasn't just any light. So bright was this light to Saul that it basically debilitated him. This was a debilitating light to Saul. The reason I keep saying that the light was so strong and so debilitating for Saul, uh, so debilitating it brought him to his knees. In another account, Paul gives this account in Acts 22, 9. It says this, those who were with me, he said, that Paul or Saul said this, those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid. So the light to his travel companions wasn't debilitating, but it was debilitating to Saul as he fell to his knees. Why? Why was this light so debilitating to Saul, but not quite as debilitating to those that were with him? Jesus Christ was really trying to get Saul's attention, and when God really wants to get a person's attention, he knows how to do it. And again, he was really trying to get Saul's attention. Did Jesus Christ not love those with Saul as much as he did Saul, so he really didn't want to get their attention at all? No, they still saw an amazing light, Scripture tells us, right? Acts 22, 9, they still saw an amazing light, the light of Christ, or a super strong light from Him, and the Scripture tells us that this same light made them afraid. 
It debilitated Saul, made them afraid. Remember, in John 12, 32, Jesus Christ tells us that if I, if I am lifted up from the earth, which we know he was, he said, then I will draw all men to myself, which means that he is drawing all men to himself. I mean, I take the Bible literally. If the Bible says something literally, for God so loves the world. Well, that means that God loves everybody in the world, right? Not everybody is saved on God's path, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them. So why not reach out to Saul's travel companions exactly like he did him? Well, Scripture tells us that God had special people in mind that he elects to do special things for him, and Saul was one of those people. We won't study this far in this chapter today, but go down to verse 15 of this same chapter where, where, from where you are now. Verse 15 tells us this. He says this. Speaking to a, a man, uh, Ananias, I believe, that was going to go lay hands on Saul so that he could get his sight back, because we know his section of Scripture already told us he was blind. He says, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So apparently God had chosen Saul to be a special tool, a special minister of his to certain people, and for him to suffer for his name's sake. Wow. You, you won't hear that taught in many churches today, right? Saul was a chosen vessel to go preach the gospel and to suffer for my name's sake. Well, I don't, I don't really think that's how these mega churches build their churches by telling people that, you know, God calls some to suffer. I don't really think that. But anyway, he called, what scripture says, God called Saul to preach the gospel and to suffer for his name's sake. So God's drawing on Saul and those God chooses in like manner will be a bit more, he'll be a bit more aggressive and intensive uh, than those that he's not calling for a specific purpose, right? But please don't misunderstand this idea here because many have misunderstood it. I use the word elect. Well, God elected or chose Saul for this specific purpose. Uh, This whole idea that's in our world today that God only saves the elect. That's a big, 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 big thing, especially here in the South where we live in Texas. And this this is the Bible Belt and this is the, the, the Baptist nation down here, and Baptists are Calvinists, and that's just the way it is, and they believe that only the elect are saved. Well, I'm against it. I don't read it in the Bible. In fact, I, I see, as we're going to look at some scriptures here in, in, in a moment, that, that God doesn't, that's not even allowed. He can't even save the elect, even though he wants to, as we're going to see. Uh, according to scripture, the Bible, we can't just say that God only draws and saves those like Saul who are elected for him for a specific purpose. This is, I believe, in my opinion, biblically, not just my opinion, but from what I read in the Bible, this is a damnable heresy. It really is. And it goes against the Bible. It goes against scriptures like I kind of referenced a little bit. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. Well, that tells me that God loves everybody in the world, right? It's the way I think it was intended by John when he wrote it, by inspiration of God. That he gave his only begotten son so that whoever, or if you really like the King James, whosoever, whosoever believes in him. Well, who, who, who is whosoever. Did God say, well, only the elect that I choose and call for my name's sake specifically, those are the ones that they believe on me, then they'll be saved. No, he said, whoever, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Again, I bring it up again, John 12, 32. And if I, Jesus speaking, if I am lifted up from the earth, which again, which he was, will draw all peoples to myself. All peoples, peoples all over the world, he'll draw to himself, peoples. Second Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. Any? All? Peoples? Any? Who's any? If I have all of a pie, how much pie do I have? All. If I have any, speaking of peoples, I don't want any to, uh, let's say, uh, I don't want any to go do this. Well, that would mean any. All, right? Any people. He should, does not want any should perish, but all should come to repentance. What's, what's again, what's the all? All come to repentance? All who? Who's the all? All everybody, right? It's common sense. 2 Timothy 2, 20 through 21. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood, clay, and some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, 
There's that therefore again, just like but, just like if. Therefore, if, well, both of them there, if anyone, who's anyone? Who's he speaking about? Anyone. Anyone is anyone, right? All is all, right? Anyone is anyone. If anyone cleanses himself from the latter, meaning the latter of being a vessel of dishonor and, and, and a, not gold, right? He will be a vessel of honor. So there, if, if they repent, and if they turn to God, and they turn to Christ, even though, say, they were made a vessel of dishonor, and it says here, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Those that repent, regardless of if they were made of high stature or for low stature or for anything, no matter what. If they turn, if they repent, and they turn to Christ, he'll be a vessel of honor. And not a dishonor anymore, we read it. And then to God's elect nation of people, Jesus, Matthew 23, 37, 38. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Well, who's he talking to? Jews. Well, if you read in the Bible, the Jews are God's elect and chosen people. That's what we read in the scriptures. They're elect. They're chosen for sure. There's no getting around that, right? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones, those that are sent to her. And I find it real funny. God just showed me this. Is Actually, I was looking at this, but I didn't add it in my notes here. But it's funny. Jesus comes with this right after the big section in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. He gave them all these woes. All these, you're not right in my sight. Woe to you. And then he cries out to him with a, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he even admits what they do. You kill the prophets and stones that are sent to you. Listen, how often I wanted to gather your children together. But, but, this, but what's important here is because as I've talked to you know, people that believe this Calvinist idea where God only saves the elect and they believe that you can't go against God's will if God's will is to do something. But what's funny, and I couldn't get an answer, but I got a shoulder shrug on this one. This, this sentence here, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The I wanted in the New King James, if, when you go back to the Greek, the I wanted there by Greek definition is to will. So, We'll read it like this. So how often I willed, this is God now, to gather your children together. The Greek word there for I wanted is to will, to have, them, have in mind, to intend, So which means intend to do. So it was God in Christ having a will to draw the Jews to himself. And that'd be, of course, well, to save them. Because, you know, we know that they weren't in his will. But woe to you, Pharisees. Woe to you, those who kill the prophets and stole those that are sent to her. And he goes on to say, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you, he tells them, were not willing. Whoa. Greek word there for what I just said to, for people's will, that their will for them to have in mind and for them to intend. And then he goes on, 38, see your house is left to you desolate, meaning... He chose them to come. They weren't willing. They rebelled. For many are called, but few are chosen. Why are they not chosen? Because they will not come, right? So their will to not be drawn to God in Christ was not right. It wasn't his will. So what happened? Their will overrode God's will. Hmm. That's interesting. God can will something in your life for you to come to him? but you can reject? Sounds to me like man has free will whether they choose to turn to Christ or not. And that's what the scripture says. So there again, their will to be drawn to God by Christ was not his will, so their will overrode God's will and they denied God's will. And the doctrine of Calvinism today, this our will overriding God's will does not compute to them. They do not understand this idea, and they reject it. And they point out instances like the seeming irresistible grace that God seems to put upon Saul here in Acts 9, saying that man's will cannot override God's will. Yet there in Matthew 23, 37, 38, uh, with God's elect people and their will, their will rejected God's will, and God didn't get his will in their lives for them to come to Christ. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we need to make sure we don't just believe the things in Scripture that seem to be saying something. Things that seem to be saying something are dangerous. We need to only believe what Scripture says to us plainly right on things. If Scripture says something plainly, then that's what we must believe. Now, there's some, some things in Scriptures that are a little, you know, a little complicated, and there are some things that are plain. And when we read something that has a plain topic on it, with some plain Scripture on it, we need to believe the plain before we need to believe the things that are a little bit complicated or seem to be something. Right? And there's some issues in the Bible right, that don't have something simple that's attached to them. And those things we got to pray about, and we need to be careful we don't take strong doctrines on. But there are some things that, well, they have some things written in them that are confusing about this one topic, but then the same topic has something really plain written about it. Well, obviously, God wants us to understand, especially when it comes to salvation, especially when it comes to people coming to Him, especially. He makes those things very, very, very plain, as we're going to look today. So God and Christ reach out to everyone to draw them to himself and to have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that he does it so that nobody is without excuse, Romans 1. But people can resist. People do suppress despite God's will to save them. Sad, isn't it? Really, really sad. God forgave them. God forgive them that reject, right? They don't know what they're missing. They don't know what they're missing. It, it, they, they don't. They, uh, God forgive them. Uh, back to Saul now. So, so Saul sees this debilitating light, falls to the ground, and while he's on the ground, scared to death, trembling on his knees, frightened. That's what verse told us. Verse 6 told us that he was trembling and astonished. So frightened is he, to me, I, I kind of see this way a little, I don't know how you picture this. When I read the Bible, I try to picture the things that I'm seeing, right? To me, he, he's not just falling to his knees here, looking around, going, oh, wow, well, who's, who's talking to me, right? Because it says when he arose, I remember this just now, when he arose, he opened his eyes and he could see. So when you add these things together, I don't see him just falling on the ground, looking around, going, what's going on? I see him so scared and so astonished, I see him falling to the ground, prostate, face in the earth, and between his arms, scared and trembling. That's how I see him. He wouldn't have been on his knees looking around, and then if he'd have gone blind, he would have went, oh, wow, I'm blind. It says that when he arose, he opened his eyes, which means that he was so frightened, I believe his face was actually just buried in the earth. He was trying to hide. But where can you hide from God? <laughs> you can't hide from God. And, and, and when God sees that he gets Saul's attention, same with kind of Moses in the burning bush, right? When God saw that Moses, he got Moses' attention, uh, and this tremendous fear had fallen upon Saul, Look what Christ says next. Look at the rest of verse 4. And hearing a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus Christ actually speaks to him. I'm sure, here by the way, with a voice that rocked him to the center of his core, of his being. And Christ asked him after saying his name twice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's an interesting statement, isn't it? What a powerful time this was for Saul. I could just feel God's power here. And now just a quick aside, we never read of one time Saul persecuting Jesus Christ personally, do we? Not one time in the Bible do we read about that. But yet here Jesus Christ says that he's persecuting him. Notice present tense. And he actually goes on, I'll talk about it a little bit. He, talks, he says that twice. So why would Jesus say this to him? Is this a contradiction? No, not quite. Because of the principle that Christ tells us about in Matthew 25, 40. Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So please, anyone listening to this message, I don't know whether you're saved or not saved, but I have a warning for you. I, I want to warn you in this. Be careful how you treat God's children. Because did you know, just like here with Saul, that however you treat his child, whether good or bad, he sees it as you're doing it to him. Ouch. So please be careful. Watch out. I don't want you to stand before him one day uh, and treated his kids badly. And yet you find out, oh, wow. Oh, you mean when I treated his kid badly, I was really treating him that way? That's how he sees it? Oh, 
but then it's too late. So just be careful. Watch out. Watch out how you treat him through his children, right? Back to our situation. So I see Saul on the ground, shaking like a fig, a frail twig, right, in the wind of a huge storm, a storm of an angry but loving Savior, for he just saw a debilitating light that, he, that I believe drove him to his face in the earth, right? Then he heard a powerful, earth-shaking voice that rocked him to the core of his being uh, with, with first part of verse 6 telling us that he was trembling, right? And look at his response. First part of verse 5. He said, Who are you, Lord? <laughs> Who are you, Lord? So Saul addresses this amazing being he hears, who is Christ, but he doesn't know he's Christ yet, as Lord. And, and there are quite a few definitions for the word Lord. And since he didn't know he was Jesus, he wasn't calling him Master like Master Jesus, right? And so the definition that I think appropriates this, this section of who are you, Lord, would be supreme in authority. He knew that whoever was there, whoever was talking to him, was, this, was a supreme, supreme being. One even, I believe Saul knew, this being was sent from God. He just didn't know quite who this being was yet, or else he wouldn't have said, Who are you, Lord? Right? And to Saul's question, Who are you, Lord? Jesus replies with the rest of verse 5. Then the Lord said, <laughs> then now in this context, the definition of this Lord would be master the Master Jesus, right? Then the Lord, the Master Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, ask and you shall receive, didn't he? Notice Christ unveils himself to Saul by just his first name. I am Jesus. Yeshua would be the Jewish name there, the Hebrew name, but Jesus, the English name, for that was his original name, Yahshua, right? Well, why? That is the only way that Saul knew Jesus. He didn't believe in him before this as the Christ. So Jesus referenced himself to who Saul knew him to be. The same Jesus that Saul had heard teaching in the synagogue and doing many miracles, and he heard himself for reference as Jesus. And remember, specifically, Jesus said, don't tell the people. Remember the time when Jesus' disciples were together. And he says, who do men say that I am? And oh, some say this, some say that. And then Peter stands up, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he goes, well, well done, you know, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Well, notice he said, but don't say anything yet. So, so he, at that point, only really referenced himself as Jesus. And this is exactly whom he shows Saul or tells Saul that he is. I'm Jesus. The same Jesus that you saw for all the years that you saw me preaching, right? Uh, so no more denying him as Christ though, right? Because now we just call him supreme being. So who you just called supreme being, I just said, I'm Jesus. He said, I'm Jesus, that supreme being whom you just said Lord to. Then after Jesus does this, he repeats what Saul is doing a second time. He says this, whom are you persecuting, or whom you are persecuting? Again, notice there in the present tense, proving that Christ was really angry with Saul for doing so, like Matthew chapter 25, right? Doing to his children as you do to him. As in the Jewish culture, they only repeat themselves uh, twice when they really want to get a point across. He noticed he said it twice, whom you are persecuting, speaking of himself in persecuting the children, his children. Then he finishes his statement as the God-man revealed by telling Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What did Christ mean by this phrase? Goads were typically made from slender pieces of timber, blunt on one end and pointed on the other. Ouch, right? Farmers used the pointed end to urge a stubborn ox into motion. Occasionally, the beast would kick against the goad. Right? The more the ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab into the flesh of its leg, causing greater pain. Now, of course, this would make the ox move as where he's being stubborn and he didn't want to move. And then Jesus says this of Saul. Why it is hard for you to kick against the goad. Now, this phrase then tells us something very important. It tells us something tremendously awesome, actually, is what it tells us. If it was hard for Saul to kick against the goads or the pointed ends of the hard stake, then this statement or phrase tells us that Christ had been calling and reaching out to Saul for some time. 
probably since maybe he had even heard Jesus preach in the synagogues and saw him do the miracles. But although Saul heard God calling him to Jesus, Saul just ignored God's calling and walked in rebellion, kicking against the goads of God's drawing and prodding him, just as Jonah had done to God when God told Jonah, go to the Ninevites. Remember, Jonah tried to run too, and he tried to kick against the goads there, but of course God won. Which means, talking about God, what God told Saul, Saul was in pain mentally and spiritually, for he was resisting God's call, and Jesus knew it. For it is hard for you to kick against the goads, Saul. And of course, we know that that word hard, according to the goad and everything, well, it meant painful, right? Saul was in pain. He had been running from God. Running, 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 running. Scripture tells us that most people just ignore the drawing of Christ and kick against the goads that God prods them with, that he uses to try to get them to come to Christ. Yet few that I've met have responded. Few I've met have yielded in surrender the way we're going to see that Saul does here in a little bit. Most people just suppress the drawing of Christ and God, kick against the goads of God, and sadly run for hell. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few that find it. Yet God desires none to perish. What a terrible position for God. I've heard someone say in light of what we read today and all the scriptures that we read today, I've heard it said a while back that every person that plunges to hell, God stands over and he weeps. And after what we read today, I really do believe that. Every person that plunges to hell of their own desire, and they know what they're doing. They know they're rejecting God. They plunge to hell, but yet God still weeps for every single person that is that goes to hell. Now, now, as for Saul, thankfully in this case here, he responds exactly the way Christ hopes all will when he draws them and he calls them. Read the first part of verse 6. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Wow. <laughs> That's the words that God's hoping for everybody to say. God desires none to perish. If only everyone whom God and Christ have called in our calling today would respond this way, I just feel God's heart in this matter would just be so blessed, so pleased. Uh, believe it or not, I, I, I do believe right here also that Saul actually became saved. I do believe at this moment he became born again. Why would I say this? Because it is at this point that he stops arguing kicking against the goads of the drawing and prodding of Christ, and he submits to Christ as Lord by asking Yeshua, the Lord, the Master, the Lord of glory, what he wants him to do. Saul speaks a phrase of submission, right? He exhibits Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. If anyone desires to come after me, Jesus says, let him deny himself. I'm done running, Jesus. I'm done running. I don't want to run no more. Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm here for you. God, here I am. I submit to you. And, and after that point of surrender, and God knows what happened in his heart, look at what Jesus tells him to do. Look at the rest, verse 6. Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So get up, go into the city of Damascus, and wait there. Doesn't give him anything else. Just wait there, and I'll tell you what you're supposed to do next. And speaking about how I do believe Saul became born again by his yielding and surrendering to Jesus Christ here in verse 9. Verse 9 tells us that God makes Saul wait three days in the house of a man named Judas before he grants him his sight back and anoints him with the power of his Holy Spirit to do the work that God gives him to do. Nobody, in my opinion, and scripturally, nobody I believe is going to be able to wait this long in the conditions that God put Saul into unless they were born again. I just don't believe somebody's going to be able to, no food or water for three days? Blind? You can't even walk around. And yet Saul was just like, okay. Now had Saul not yielded to God at this point, <laughs> had he not yielded to God at this point, he, he could have just walked away and just, you know, people learn how to live blind. Hey, just, you know what, forget it. I'm, I'm still not coming. 
But yet he obeyed what God told him to do for three whole days. What does Saul do immediately after Jesus Christ tells him to go? Verses 7 and 8. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. He gets up from the ground. Notice he's no longer afraid, even though he's now blind, and he has his travel companions lead him right into Damascus right away where he doesn't eat or drink any food or liquid for three whole days while he waits patiently upon God to do just what he told him to do. Hey, wait for the next step. Saul, go in. I'm not telling you nothing now, but just wait on me. Just wait on me. To me, this sounds like an amazing man of God who said in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He exhibits here to me the same unquestioned obedience that the disciple Philip exhibited when God told him, Hey, go on that desert road between Jerusalem and Gaza and you know, go there. Doesn't tell him what he's going there for. Doesn't tell him who he's going to meet. Doesn't tell him his mission. Nothing. Go to the desert road. You know that one that goes between Jerusalem and Gaza. You know the one where there's nothing to nobody. Well, really? He doesn't even, doesn't even, he just goes. Here, Saul does the same thing as I see the disciple Philip do. What has God been doing in your life to get your attention to draw him to you, or to draw him, to draw you to himself like he was doing with Saul? What has God been doing in your life? God hasn't just been calling or drawing you to Christ for a day or a week or even a year. He's been drawing you to Jesus your whole life. I firmly, firmly, firmly believe this. Me, myself, I still remember my grandmother and my grandfather dragging me to church at the ages of four and even five years old, maybe even a little younger. But I kicked against the goads and slept and filthily fooled around with other little girls that were there and ignored the mouthpiece of God that was at church. That was me, and that was as early as even four and five years old. Then that drawing and calling was still there my whole youth, even though my mom and dad never kept us in church, as there was a schism between the religions of my mom and dad's family, and so they never were religious, they never went to church, they never did anything, and we never read the Bible as a family, so it wasn't like we were even trying, but God's calling and drawing was still there, even though at that my mom had me say these very simple words to God, when I went to bed every night, she had me say these things. And this is how I see, I was looking back and this the sermon and God was just reminding me of all these things. And I was just so surprised to remember all these things of how God was drawing me and calling me to himself. Even since I was a little boy, she had me say these words. Words that I, th- I look at now and I'm like, wow. And I looked up the little prayer and it is a little prayer, but she didn't even teach me the whole prayer. It was only the beginning part of the prayer. Kind of like, you know, I'll help you kick against the ghost, but we'll, we'll make a little effort anyway, right? And I, I prayed these words. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray to God my soul to take. Now again, this wasn't the full prayer. I actually looked it up, and this is a full prayer. And it exalts God and glorifies God in it too, but of course we didn't do that. But, but yet God was still there, just, just, a, just a thread. Right, And then I would ask right after that, well, God, bless Mommy and Daddy and Grandma and Grandpa and blah, blah, blah. Everybody I could think of in my family. Was I saved at this point? Was I having a submitted relationship with Jesus, with God through Jesus Christ, His Son? No way, Jose. I just said Him as words. I, they, hey, they were repetition. They were, but I still see God there, right? These were just words, and I know that I wasn't because I lived my life completely for me and self-consumed as kids do, kicking against the goats. Still messing around. I had an aunt that was about the same age as mine, and we would come over and we'd play doctor together. I served video games as my God. They were my life. And even at one point, I was addicted to smelling model glue. When I, I mean, I was only five and six and seven and eight years old at the time. I was a messed up little boy. I, I'm ashamed to admit these things now, but this is how I was. This is who I was. So no, I wasn't saved. I wasn't praying because I had a relationship with God. I was praying because, hey, God was still showing me. I'm there. Come to me. Come to me. But, you know, I did with it what I did with it. I, I just kind of 
did nothing with it, right? I just kind of like, it was just something that I just did is another ritual. Like, ah, uh, you know, I get up and I put on my shoes every day. It doesn't mean anything to me, but I do it every day. Even praying this simple, foolish prayer, though, every night that didn't even include the full prayer that did glorify God, not even praying to the God of heaven and earth, but yet there was his drawing and calling on my life as I believe he draws and calls everybody, right? Yet I kicked against the goads and I kept running as miserable of a little boy and even a young adult as I was. Then when I was in my preteen years, I can remember my... My faithful Uncle Joey. And he'd be so proud of me for using his name in this sermon because he wouldn't care. He's, he is still to this day a mighty man of God, a truly born-again Christian. And, and poor Uncle Joey. Poor, rejected, and dejected Uncle Joey, right? He'd come over to our apartment in Davie, Florida, or Fort Lauderdale, Florida, right? And he'd come over for a good old home-cooked meal that my mom would make, and it never failed. And I knew it. Every time he was there, he'd always manage to talk to us about the Bible, especially the Mark of the Beast in Revelation. And I, well, I'd find myself interested while he was there, but of course I never took a step toward God. I never took a step toward Christ. I just kept kicking against the goats. And so much so did I kick against the goats, that, that in fact, when I knew he was coming over, when I'd find out oh, Uncle Joey's coming over, I'd find anything that I possibly could to run and get away, not be home, so that when Uncle Joey came over, I wasn't home to hear him because I knew every time he came to the house, he was going to talk about that darn Bible. Yet, as much as I tried to avoid him coming over, God never, not even one time, let me out of the house, <laughs> not even once. God made me stay, even though I was a young teenager. He made me stay, tween, I should say, before I was a teenager. God made me be there every single time. Yet, I still and I continued to kick against the goads, just like we see Saul did here today. And, and I could go on and on, even until I finally stopped kicking against the goads and stopped running, and I yielded myself to him when I was about 25 years old. But I think you get the picture at this point. So, but I ask you again today, what has God been doing in your life to get your attention, to draw him Christ like he was doing with Saul, like he did with me my whole youth life? And I'll add now, how have you been kicking against the goads to run away from him? And how long and how tired are you of running away? How long have you been running? And how tired are you of running and kicking? All your life until now, it could be, have you been running for 10 years, 20, 30, 80, 90? I don't know how old you are, God does. But how long have you been running? I, I, was, I kicked the goads for 25 years. Saul kicked for who knows how long, but scripture does say that he was young. So I'm guessing that he was maybe 25 to 30 in this scripture right here because he was a young man, scripture called him until this day we read of in this section, when he stopped kicking against the goads. You see, God doesn't want to be on the outside of your life trying to get in as just one of the head beliefs that you have, right alongside the other things you know that you believe, the many millions and millions and millions of beliefs and things and opinions that you have. He doesn't want to be there. He wants to be your ultimate heart knowledge and be on your in. Side. He doesn't want to be on the outside looking in. He desires to come inside of you and be the one to whom you give yourself to wholly and fully. That's what God really wants. So many people believe themselves to be saved and really walking with God and Christ, but, but in reality, all they have is a head knowledge of God and Christ, and their lives show the difference. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is a new creation, right? The old is gone, the new has come. If anyone is a new creation in Christ. Well, a new creation means that you're not the same as you were before. You're changed. You're different. Jesus said, unless ye be converted and become as a little child, you shall never enter the kingdom of God. Notice that there was a change there. This new creation is a change. 
So if you're not born again, if you're not giving yourself fully to God, the Creator, to Jesus Christ, then you're not going to be a new creation with salvation, right? But to get to this, to be, to get to be this new creation, God says that you need to give your life totally bowed down and submitted and surrendered to Him as Lord or Master, same as we see here in Saul's today's section of Scripture, right? Not the, not the beginning, but the end, right? What did he say, verse 6? Lord, what do you want me to do? Jesus Christ told us the same thing in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. He said this, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. What does that mean? If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Right? What, what is God saying here? What did Christ say with this? What is deny self? Deny self means to put yourself in the background and to put your life, put, put God in Christ and the things of God in Christ in the forefront. So God in Christ, not in the back anymore, and you or you in the background, Christ sitting on your throne. There is a gospel track picture that portrays what Christ says in Matthew 16, and I'll have it on the website for you that are listening on SoundCloud right now to look at, right? But for those of us that are in church today, I want you to take that piece of that picture that I just gave to you, and I want you to take it on, I want you to look at it, right? I'm going to describe it for you, though, who are listening online, who can't see the picture who have, or haven't seen it yet, right? It's a picture of two kinds of lives. It's a picture, right? It's one picture, and it's got two thrones on it. One throne has the individual sitting in it, ruling their own lives, right? Sitting on the throne themselves, right? Where everything they do revolves around themselves. Making them what, though? Making them the Lord and the master of their own lives. See that in the picture there, and you'll see it in the picture online once you finally get there. It's a picture of one man sitting on the throne, and everything else, it's in, they're all in his bubble, they're all in his knowledge, but notice he's on the throne, right? He's not denied himself there. He's actually on the throne. He is the Lord. He is the king of his own life. The other picture on the hand, though, shows what happens in Matthew 16, 24, right? It shows the deny yourself. When, what happens when you make a decision to deny yourself, to stop kicking against the goads and respond to Christ, drawing and calling you with Jesus Christ on the throne of your life and on your heart and all that you do and all your interests bowed down to his rule and lordship of your life while not you but while he sits on the throne and while you and all your interests are bowing down to him on the throne of your heart and of your life, while everything you do is kind of pointed toward him. So it's not you, the master of your own life anymore. It's God and Christ are the masters of your life. Which person in those two pictures describes you today? Once you, once you see it, or if you're looking at it right now, if you're listening to this message and you see, which one of these two people would you say of yourself? Is your heart surrendered to Christ? Are you in submission to Christ? Or are you kicking against the goads and resisting His calling and drawing on your life as I and Saul did in the past? If you say surrendered, let's go there, then that means that you're born again. If Christ is on the throne of your life, that means then you're born again. If you're born again and you're not backsliding, then your life should be full of things like hating sin. Hating the things that aren't of God. Hating wickedness. Hating evil. Loving good. Loving righteousness. Living righteousness. Your life should be full of fellowship with other Christians, desiring to be with other Christians, to eat and you know, talk with and fellowship with and debate and love and do things for and serve. As, you know, then they should be serving you and you serving them. Also things like seeking God daily in prayer, reading His Word. 
you know, praying, reading His Word. It's kind of how we talk, right? The main way you should be able to hear from God is through His Word. Well, Pastor Ed, what about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, I know. The Holy Spirit's going to speak to us too. But we get confused sometimes. And the devil even tried to deceive Jesus by some words that were right out of the Bible. So the main number way way that you should hear from God is through His Word. And that's period the end. And whatever you hear that you think is from God should line up with His Word. But I had, you know, I had a guy at work years ago that said, Oh, I love God and love Jesus too. Oh, I'm my Lord and Savior. I said, Oh, that's awesome. Where do you go to church? Oh, you don't have to go to church to love God. His whole countenance changed. That doesn't God's got us. He told me something special. Well, that's not what the Bible says. And since the Bible's the number one way you hear God, that's what we follow to hear God. So, praying, seeking Him daily in prayer and reading His Word. If you're saved, you should be following Christ's words in obedience. The things that Jesus said to you in His Word, those are the things that we should be following in, our, in His Word, right? Rest, uh, resisting, also, something else if you're really born again saved, resisting the worldly lusts and the passions of your flesh. You should not be walking in these as, oh, they're just a way of life. Oh, I love God, but oh, you know, I'm fornicating every day and going to the bars and clubs. This is not something that somebody that's truly born again does. For if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You're new. And if you're in Christ and you're not backsliding, well, I'll add, you're a new creation. You're, you're, you're walking in newness. You're walking in ways that God said to walk. If, though, you're kicking against the goads, then you are, well, sin is abundant in your life. Yeah, you know what? I sin, it's no concern. Hey, God loves me. Hey, you know, I know Jesus Christ died for me on the cross. And, you know, he loves me. It doesn't matter what. Hey, you know, I'm not saved by the works I do or the works that I don't do and the sin that I do and I don't do. Hey, I'm saved because his blood covers me. Right? That's what you think if you're kicking against the goats. Or, or hardly reading or hardly praying or hardly obeying Jesus Christ in his words. Well, I know he said them, but, you know... Well, you know, we're only human, you know, and, you know, it's hard. You know, I mean, we can't, there's no way we could do all the things that Jesus said. After all, you know, I mean, just, that's, that's all right. You know, I love God. You know, I love God. And uh, worldly pleasures and, and lusts in your life will be, just, you'll just be giving yourself to them. You won't, won't bother you if you're a fornicator, if you sleeping with a girl on the side and you're married or maybe you got think you didn't want to get married but you're living together oh that's a good one I'd, we'll just live together you know because those marriages you know nowadays when people get married they and marriages that that's just not the way to go because marriage is always ending in a divorce so you know just skip all that messy stuff and we'll just live together and of course live together is not married and of course you're having sex with the girl you with but if but if you're kicking against the goads and you're not born again this is what your life will be like not giving in to God, ruling your life yourself. But oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. But yet the Bible says if he's not your Lord, you're not saved. If you tell others you're saved and walking with Jesus, if you have to tell them that, <laughs> if you have to tell them you're saved, if you have to tell them that, oh, I love Jesus, and really, probably not. Because if you have to point something out to people that's obvious, if it's that obvious, why do you have to tell them? They're just things to watch out for. So which one are you? Are you kicking against the goads or are you surrendered and submitted? If, if you're not and you realize today that you're not, according to the Bible, not according to me, if you realize you're not surrendered and you're not submitted, whether born again or not, if you're backsliding, doesn't matter. If you're, if you're not surrendered and submitted, then please stop kicking against the goads and come to or come again to Christ today and lay your life down on the altar of God's heart and fall on your knees and apologize to God right now for you're not going to heaven, you're not in a right relationship with Him. Fall on your knees and stop resisting. Give up. Give in to God and give Him everything. And don't look back. He's waiting on you. 
and he wants to save you. But he said the first step in doing that is you must deny yourself. And deny yourself means give it all away. Give it all to him. Surrender to him today. He's waiting on you. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your word. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your love. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your way that you said people must be saved. Lord God, people, oh boy, especially in America, people have surely made up so many ways, Lord God, that they think that they're saved. Oh, Lord God, in every religion all over the world, they think they're saved. They think they're going to heaven. They think they're right with you, dear God. But they, yet they think of their own opinions, Lord. They think of their own ideas and their own ways, yet anything, there's only so many hard, perfect truths, Lord. There's so many absolute truths. There's only so many. Everybody just doesn't have an absolute truth, Lord God. Absolute truth is for you and your word. And salvation, Lord, you gave an absolute way to be saved. It's not just my opinion, or it's not just that pastor's, well, I think it's this, or I think it's that, Lord. There's an absolute way that you gave to be saved. And you said it started with deny self. God, I pray, please, Lord God, that those listening to me today would realize, Lord God, that they would stop kicking against the goads and they'd realize, Lord God, that they're not yours. And they would submit and they'd surrender to you and your way. And they would turn to you right now, this moment, this instant, today, and fall on their faces and give themselves totally and wholly and fully to you. Please, God, help them to do that. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, dear God. Thank you that you did that in my life and thank you that you did that in the life of Saul, who then becomes Paul not too long from now. The greatest, one of the, the single greatest missionary that you called to do your work anywhere in all the world. Thank you, Lord God. We love you and praise you and ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.